0: it's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends well it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you
1: thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts
0: right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. So I came across this email in my inbox called 50 Ways We Fake Maturity. And I kind of wish that I could nail one of the voices that you do, Jason, because I'm going to ask you to repeat this in your own way you go, go on.
1: Well, actually, my initial reaction wasn't go on, although that is apropos of this particular topic. I did the eyebrow raise where I go, hmm, okay. And then I go, go on. So, it was the pause, the eyebrow raise, the hmm, and then the go on in that particular order.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for reenacting How you would have acted had you seen this email. Actually, it did come into our mutual inbox, but I don't think you read it because um, you tend not to read our emails unless I ask you to. A little behind the scenes knowledge, everybody. That's that's, uh, how things work here. Why is it, by the way, Jason, that you don't like to read the emails? Overwhelm. Go on.
1: Yeah. This goes back to the conversation of why I feel I need to get off social media because it's every day my personal inbox, the Wellevator inbox, Instagram DMs, LinkedIn DMs, Facebook, it's too much. And I'm realizing that I need to cut away the unnecessary fluff, much like I would be if I were to shave my cat Claudia. Although her fluff is not necessarily unnecessary, it's very necessary, especially in the wintertime. But during the summer months, one could probably make a case. Her egregious fluff is unnecessary. But I think it's just a fact, Whitney, of like, it's too many messages from too many sources. And I need to do a better job at minimizing and cutting away the things that don't really matter. And I think by removing myself from the social media conversation, that's going to be a way that I can focus my energy on things that are more important, like the inbox. So I know that's like kind of a long diatribe. But if you, the listener, have been around for our previous conversations around social media and the mental health side of things, I think wit, it's just, I have too many inboxes. I have too many things for me, right? Some people are like, oh, that's totally fine. Two email boxes, five DM inboxes. It's just, it's too much for me right now. Yeah, it's mentally too much.
0: I think it would be too much for a lot of people. I get overwhelmed as well. I have talked about before how I struggle to find the words to email, text, or message people back. So it will often take me a while. It's very common for me to leave messages unread for days, weeks, sometimes even months because I need to gear up for the energy to craft a response. But looking at them, receiving them and organizing them, that doesn't overwhelm me. And I think it's because I've built some systems and I also find pleasure in it. So I've been going through my multiple email accounts. I have a bunch for different purposes like I have a personal email account and then I have a bunch of professional email accounts and then one that's kind of in between. You know what, actually, I have two personal accounts and then one in between, which is where I send a lot of newsletters and I never check that. That is like overflowing if it was possible for emails to overflow. And then I have all my professional emails and I feel so stimulated and so much pleasure when I Can get to inbox zero, which I'm slowly making my way towards right now. I have, I think, in total from those main inboxes. Okay, I'm looking right now, 305 unread messages. So, what I'll do is I organize them in different ways. So, I sometimes like put them in my mental categories, or you can even put them in mailboxes or folders. And then sometimes I'll just sort them by sender and I'll just go through a bunch of emails cuz a lot of these are newsletters, right? And then I started setting up rules so that emails I wanted to read but like didn't want to see in my inbox, I put them in a separate mailbox. So I've like set up all these like little systems for myself. And I'm also trying to become more and more aware of how an email makes me feel, like tuning into it and using the tactics I learned in the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, which is, does this spark joy? Does this serve a purpose in my life? Do I need this? Or do I feel like I should have it in my inbox? And I'm kind of setting more boundaries with myself. And if I get an email, read it over. And it's a newsletter. This is different from like a non-newsletter email. But a newsletter email, if I don't find like it brings me joy and they haven't brought me joy, like I've been subscribed for a while and it's not really doing much for me, I'll unsubscribe. And I'll know that I can always resubscribe. That really helps me a lot. And then I just go through phases of trying to read through them and sit down. A lot of times, I save newsletters as unread because I want to read them. It's just that when they came into my inbox, I didn't want to spend the time at that moment. So that's when they build up. And then when it comes to emails from other people, for me, it's typically that I don't know what to say right away, or it's not an automatic yes. And that's super interesting as well, because sometimes I know exactly what to say. And it's like a quick minute-long process of writing an email. And it's usually when I don't feel a lot of pressure, or I've had a dynamic with the person in the past, or it just... like comes immediately to my mind. But the more common experience that I have that causes me overwhelm is when I don't know how I want to say what I want to say, or I don't know what to say yet. And that's super interesting too, because I feel like often that experience shows me that maybe I shouldn't even be responding at all, which gives me a little bit of guilt because I don't like ignoring someone mostly because I've been on the receiving end as many of us have of being ignored. In fact, as we were putting together our big one-year podcast anniversary and holiday giveaway, there are plenty of people that we reached out to to see if they would contribute products to it that never responded. And I don't really take that personally. In most cases, there's every once in a while someone where I feel like it's a little bit rude based on our dynamic that you didn't respond to me. But I have certainly done that to other people plenty of times. And I think that it's really fascinating how our society has conditioned us to feel like we have to respond or to expect a response, period, or thinking that it needs to be really quickly. And I think the more that I've felt this overwhelm and hesitation, the more compassion I have for others. And one thing that works for me most of the time is when somebody follows up with me a second time, a third time. And does it very politely. Usually I will respond to them very quickly because I feel bad that they've been waiting. And it helps me like make a decision faster because I know that it's important to them. And so that's actually encouraged me to follow up with people multiple times. And in the case of our giveaway, you and I did that, Jason. I think probably in some cases we had to follow up three times and still never heard back. And maybe that's just their way of saying no. You <laughs> know, like maybe they're in box. Is just as jam packed as yours and mine. And either they never saw it because it's that overflowing, or they simply don't have the energy, don't know what to say. Some people have a hard time saying no, even when they want to say no. So I think email is a really fascinating thing. And I'm with you, Jason. As part of a business partnership, it's nice that you and I can kind of take turns on undoing this. Like, I certainly don't have a problem organizing things and following up to remind you. So long-winded intro to this (laughs) email I received from a wonderful author named Kathleen Smith, and actually meant to check earlier to see if we had invited her to the podcast yet. Speaking of not getting responses, sometimes with people like her, meaning authors or people that are publishing a lot, it takes a while to hear from them. And we have to do a lot of follow-up to get podcast guests on the show. Some people say yes right away. (laughs) Some people say yes, and we still have to follow up with them a bunch of times. But I really would love to have her on the show because she shares so many great things about anxiety and mental health and all that. And we actually referenced her in a previous episode, which I pulled up here. It's called How Distance Binds Anxiety. And that was published in August 2020. We'll link to that in the show notes of this episode. If you haven't checked out our website before, you can find show notes which is a transcript and a resource section for every single podcast episode that we do and that is at wellevator.com which is spelled w e l l e v a t r.com and if you go to the podcast section that's where you'll find this and really our aim is to make it easy for you to find anything that we reference so this newer email that Kathleen sent talked about how she has been observing maturity and how 2020 has been a lesson in what happens when you dial up the stress and take away all of the relationships and other variables that tend to boost our functioning and self-esteem. For many of us, our capacity to think, solve problems, and direct our lives has taken a nosedive in this more anxious, more isolated pandemic world. And at the, of course, that's, that's really fascinating and true if we step back and acknowledge it. And then she goes into what the pseudo-self is, which is a term for part of us that is challengeable due to our relationship pressure and how that can make us appear more mature than we really are. The functioning of the pseudo-self can be enhanced by a number of boosters that can temporarily make us more capable, less anxious, and generally happier. So she gives this great list of 50 pseudo self-boosters that I think would be really interesting to examine. And then she shares some alternatives to that. And I'm fascinated. I haven't finished reading the email because I thought it would be more interesting to do this live. Number one on this list, which is (laughs) one thing that really makes me cringe. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you know this about me. The first thing on the list is being very busy. (laughs) And so if we think about that in terms of how that boosts our self-esteem, makes us feel like we're important and plays a role in our relationships, I think this pseudo-self that we create when we tell everybody that we're really busy all the time. I mean, it's a huge challenge for me. We've talked about conscious languaging a few times on this show and... I just wish more people were aware of it, but I don't have control over who says that they're busy and when. So I have to monitor myself (laughs) and really work on not judging people for using the word busy and recognizing that that's just a term that I think people have conditioned themselves to say because that is part of like the pseudo self.
1: I think busy is almost like Whitney, a euphemism and not an accurate description of what the person is actually experiencing. I feel like busy is first of all it's almost like virtue signaling as you said about I'm an important person and if I don't have time to do a Zoom call with you I was about to say go have lunch but I mean whatever lunch Zoom call and any kind of meaningful interaction I think busy is sort of a way of a person positioning themselves in like I have so much going on that I don't have time for you, right? But I think underneath busy If people were more honest about why they're choosing what they're choosing, it could be out of this sense of not enoughness, of I need to, again, make myself feel significant or perhaps being busy too. And we might have talked about this on a previous episode, maybe not. It's difficult. Once we're this many episodes in. this is episode 166, it's difficult to recall hundreds of hours worth of conversation. Nonetheless, I think busy is also a way sometimes for people to... How do I say this? Distance themselves from intimacy in the sense that if I'm, quote, busy, then I don't really have time to have a vulnerable, intimate interaction with anyone, whether that's family, whether that's significant others, whether that's friends. That's really kind of like, proverbially speaking, holding someone at arm's length when you say that.
0: Well, I think we did address that in that other episode I mentioned where we were talking about Kathleen Smith, and that was about using things like busyness as a way to keep people at arm's length. And it's like, yeah, avoiding intimacy. So a lot of the things actually that show up on this list of pseudo self boosters are similar to the other episodes. So we'll skip over some that we've talked about a bit. And also I encourage you to go check out Kathleen's book. It's called Everything Isn't Terrible. And her website, her newsletter, all of that. Actually, I think I can link to... Let me double check this. Yes. I can link to this very article and slash newsletter that she put out. So you can go check out everything on this list. Cause if we went through all 50, it would be a really long episode. Oh,
1: come on, wit Let's do a three hour. Let's go for our first <laughs> three hour episode.
0: <laughs> I don't think it would be our first. We got pretty close with Luke's story.
1: That's true. I feel like though, if there are some that jump out at you, pick the ones that make you go, ooh, okay.
0: Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to pick any that that don't resonate with me.
1: All right. So what's next on the list that jumps out at you?
0: This is number five on this list, which is having an impressive job title. And again, this is something that we don't need to go super into depth on because one of the episodes I feel like we reference the most (laughs) because it really summarized a lot of our feelings was about the word expert and guru. And we've also talked... Was it that same episode, Jason, where we talked about titles? Or is that a whole separate episode that we did?
1: No, that's a completely separate episode. The Experts and Gurus is a separate episode. The one you're referencing is, I think, about titles and labels. Yeah, The Experts yes. and Gurus was a separate episode. okay. We'll All link right, to both well, of them in the show notes, though. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, we're going to give you a lot of references today, a lot of episodes to go listen to. The next one is number six, getting good grades. And I think that can apply to all different levels of school, of course, but it's very similar even in work environments. I look at, maybe she even mentions this on her list, but getting good grades is so similar to like making a lot of money or getting high social media numbers. Any of those types of metrics where you're evaluating yourself in comparison to other people, evaluating your performance. And we have dabbled in talking about Getting grades before. I mean, this certainly comes up so much in this anti hustle culture mentality that we have. Another thing on the list is receiving attention on social media, which we talk about at length. And number nine, you might find this one interesting, Jason. Like, this might be fascinating because I'd love for you to take a step back and examine what you've been talking a lot about, which is not using social media. Like, for her, if we go to this idea about the pseudo self, do you believe that your desire not to use social media or to take a break is a way for you to feel more capable, less anxious and happier? And is that something that's just temporary? And in this case, about your pseudo self, like if you step away from it and not rationalize it, but really like examine it for a moment, could you see how that might be what's happening here?
1: I think I need you to clarify a little bit more. Do you mean in the sense that if I were to take this sort of, how do I say this, a break without end, right? Because I'm not necessarily going to do it with a set point to get back on, that taking this break would be a way for me to, when you talk about pseudo-self, like be more virtuous, like, hey, everyone, look at how courageous I am. I'm getting off social media. Look at how much willpower I have. I'm getting off. Is that what you mean? Is it almost like pseudo-self as a euphemism for ego? I guess I'm just trying to understand the question.
0: Well, I'm not fully clear on what it means either, and that's why I want to get Kathleen on the show. Maybe we'll send her this episode and be like, see, we need you to come on here and explain this to us. But I did find another article that she published in 2019 titled, I am less mature than I appear. And she goes into this pseudo self side of things that we've been referencing And she gives some examples here. So, pseudo maturity is another term she uses, which is excelling at work or school when you have a teacher or boss who praises you, versus actual maturity is performing well at school or work regardless of the amount of praise from others. Pseudo maturity could be joining in the latest outrage on social media. Actual maturity in that case would be developing and defining your thinking even when it may promote anxiety in others. Does that help you better understand what she means by the pseudo-self or pseudo-maturity?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is a difficult thing because if we have been raised in a family or religion or a system that continues us to chase carrots, which I think most human beings have to a degree, disassociating ourselves from ooh, look what I did. I did good. Give me my gold medal. And we've talked about the many permutations of this, right? If I just follow this formula, if I do everything the quote right way, then I'll be rewarded for it, whether that's praise, attention, significance. I've mentioned in the past the concept of the four dual basic urges of we're constantly chasing attention, approval, significance, importance, and trying to avoid pain, discomfort, disapproval, and being ignored. And I think what she's describing is noble in a sense. I would be curious what she would recommend in terms of untangling ourselves from that system of chasing rewards. And it's difficult to do. And I think to your point, Whitney, if I'm looking at why I want to stop doing things, including social media and why I want to distance myself from certain activities, I could just make a blanket statement like it's not joyful anymore, which is true to a large degree. But then if I go underneath and I'm like, well, why isn't it joyful anymore? Is it because of the expectations of a reward that I had on it? Right. Of if we just write the perfect newsletters and we have the perfect funnel for our courses and we do all these things again, quote, right. We did it the right way. And then the rewards, the praise, the money, the success doesn't come. I have to be honest, I think that's a big part of it. I think at a certain point, if I'm in business, whether that's chefing or podcasting or writing books or whatever I'm engaged in, it's hard. I think, to put in a certain amount of work into something, and especially if you're attached to feeling rewarded for what you do, being self-directed or self-approving, or feeling like you can just be proud of your work, regardless of other people's interpretation, I find that very difficult, and I still very much struggle with that. And I ask myself wit of, if I'm creating whatever it is, music or writing or food, this podcast? and we're not getting the feedback we want, then what are the internal metrics, independent of anyone else's opinion, that I measure whether I feel good about my work in the world? I still don't have those answers. What's my internal process of, you did good, Jason, excellent, and not waiting for you as my business partner to be like, great writing, great newsletter, or my mom, or our followers, or our newsletter subscribers. I don't know what those internal metrics are yet. And I'm not even sure if feeling proud is what I'm even going for. That's an interesting word of like, are you proud of your work? You hear that a lot, like asking people, like, are you proud of what you've done? I'm not even sure that I'm chasing pride, if that even matters. And so I think in real time, as you ask this question, I'm still very much trying to figure out what is that barometer inside of myself that can help me feel pleased or good or content about what I'm creating. I still don't know what that is.
0: Yeah. And it's an ongoing journey of trying to figure this out. A few things, kind of skipping ahead a bit, but because you asked about kind of Kathleen's tips for how we can get around this, she says, a few things that can help you stay focused on building actual maturity. Number one is to define what, quote, good work looks like instead of adopting definitions from others. And this is a big thing for me. I've been doing a lot of work to reflect on how do I even define what is good if it's not always based on what other people have defined good as. If we think about feeling good enough, it's like, well, a lot of us don't feel good enough because we're so busy comparing ourselves to other people or defining ourselves based on what other people define as good enough. And that's a lot of unraveling. That's a lot of reflection. I think this is one of the reasons that meditation is such an important practice is it's about coming back to yourself. It's about tuning out the world and getting clear on what you really want versus tuning into the noise all the time. Number two on this list of things that can help you stay focused and building actual maturity is to define your thinking about a challenging situation or issue before you consult with others. And this is something I'm working on. I've recognized that I really struggle with self-trust. When a problem comes up, the first thing I want to do is go ask somebody else for advice. It's to go ask somebody, well, what would you do? And it was a fairly recent realization that I had that I was not even consulting myself first. Right. And so I'm working on that and I'm noticing it. And that's part of this process is the noticing. It's raising that awareness. And then the last thing on this list is to try not to intentionally seek out praise or approval from others. And that's super tricky, depending on how you were raised. But it's, it's also generally tricky because so much of our society, depending on your generation, of course, but I think many of the younger generations are really constantly looking for praise and approval from others because of platforms like social media. But you've talked openly about this, too, Jason, and how growing up, you loved being the center of attention. Like That was a way that you coped, and that was the way that you felt like you were important. Is that right?
1: Safety. I mean, really, underneath it all, I think, for me, was safety in the sense that I realized, and we've talked about coping mechanisms from childhood and how those can create problems for us in adulthood. And for me, I realized that by being a naturally extroverted person and very gregarious and high energy as a kid, if people in the room were entertained and they were laughing and having a good time, and I was the, I suppose, cause of that laughter and good time, then I wouldn't be abandoned. It was a safety mechanism for me, observing that if people are joyful and happy, and I'm the giver of that joy or the conduit for it, then who's going to abandon someone who makes them laugh? Who's going to abandon someone who makes them joyful? So it's been a coping mechanism that I've had to look at and, and didn't have the awareness of until very recently, the last few years. And then the other side of it too, Wit, is, and this is what I mean about causing problems or challenges as an adult, is as an adult being the center of attention and choosing that and seeking it out and finding the same thing that if People are laughing and having a good time. And I'm kind of in the center of it, directing that, that people come to expect it. And then when I have been battling depression, when I have been battling anxiety, when I've felt suicidal, when I've dealt with a lot of dark emotions, challenging emotions, in the beginning, people were just like, well, you, like, what do you mean you don't feel what? It confused people in the beginning because I think in some ways we are slaves to our own typecasting in society. If we carve out an identity, In a very specific way, socially, that people come to expect that side of you all of the time. And I mean this maybe not so much in close relationships, but more so acquaintances and colleagues that don't really know all the aspects of your personality. They're just like, oh, yeah, Jason, he's the funny guy. He laughs all the time. Look at that smile, not knowing that there's a lot of pain and darkness and challenge going on inside of me. So I think these coping mechanisms, these identities we craft for ourselves. For protection, attention, importance, significance, I have found they can cause a lot of havoc because they don't really translate well to adulthood.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Another one that kind of ties into this is being perceived as a rebel. I think.
1: <laughs> ding <laughs> um, ding ding! Yeah,
0: <laughs> you've talked about your. Is it a tendency? right? It's the rebel that's a tendency.
1: Yeah, we've talked the about the four tendencies yes. we've talked about. Yeah. Yes.
0: And so when you say ding, 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 what does that mean?
1: This is interesting. This kind of goes back to the Enneagram conversation we had in a previous episode with Jackie Coban, that my particular Enneagram type is definitely, and I did a lot more research after that episode. It's definitely, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it right in front of me, but it's sort of like this striving to be unique and innovative and rebellious. And for me, even as a kid, I think that there's been this idea that I would look around and see what the majority of people were doing and that it would be popular and accepted and I'd go, nope, don't want to do that. And almost this knee-jerk reaction to what would be perceived as the status quo or the norm and then automatically rebelling against that. I think that's one of the big reasons I became vegan in my early 20s is I just remember looking around and going, okay. Everyone's eating this particular way. They're eating processed food, junk food, a lot of animal products. They don't feel good. They're sick. They're getting diseases. Well, and look how many billions of people are living this way. Okay, well, I'm going to do the opposite. And I think that there's just something in me. I don't think I'm purposefully contrarian. I think rebellious is a little bit more, whereas I just always had like a desire to do the opposite of what I see most people doing. And then if you mix that with a really healthy disrespect for authority, <laughs> At times I have been somewhat of a handful to deal with, and I think it's part of that sort of enneagram, Whitney, that resonated of, I'm trying to like show my uniqueness to the world by choosing these things that are contrarian or against the norm. But the funny thing is, when you're a nonconformist, and then eventually you grow up and you travel the world and you go to more places and meet more people and find people are like and I'm just using this as an example "Oh, you're an anarchist, vegan, polyamorous, transsexual, too. Okay, cool. It's like you realize these, quote, weird, unique, rebellious, diverse things you thought you were choosing or felt compelled by your soul to move toward. I have found that like the, quote, weird, unusual, unique things aren't that weird, unusual or unique when I meet more people. It's like, oh, there are more people that have had this thought and made these choices. Okay, maybe I'm not that unique after all.
0: Yeah. And another way to look at this, too, is, as Kathleen says, a lot of people will end up in therapy when whatever has bolstered their sense of self has disappeared. That could be a boss, a romantic partner, a change in their lives, because people are quick to borrow the appearance of maturity from their achievements, their jobs, their relationships, or even political or religious groups. And it's super fascinating when you look at this list and reflect on how that plays a role in our lives. like my life as Whitney, your life as Jason, you the listener, and then reflecting on how that shows up in people around you. And you can start to notice these things. I think that actually helps with compassion. It's like when I was saying, I do take issue with people who say that they're busy all the time. But if I can take a step back and realize maybe they're just trying to bolster their sense of self, maybe they're just trying to feel more capable, less anxious, and be happier maybe because they're trying to show that they're mature. We've talked a lot about busyness as like an indicator of success. But what if somebody feels like that shows that they're just more mature or something, right? Like maturity and success aren't that different from one another in a lot of ways. And knowing that at some point, our positions in lives, our organizations that we're part of, people in our lives, all of those things will disappoint us at some point because they do change. And when it does change like it has in 2020 and probably will again in 2021, we might find that our mood, our health, our overall functioning, as Kathleen says, will take a nosedive. And I think that's part of the reason it is so incredibly important for us to be talking about these
1: things. Well, a really, I guess, existential question in all of this, Whitney, that I sit with is without my awards or my titles or the accolades or the magazine covers or the TV show or the podcast or the YouTube channel or the praise or name it, the car, the house, the zip code, the partner, the people I associate myself with, if all that's stripped away because I didn't come into this world with all those things. You didn't come into this world. Nobody did. Is that if we take all those things away, wit, and we are without our titles, our professions, our money, our, I suppose, worldly identifiers of success, notoriety, fame, importance, who are we? And I think it's a liberating question, and at the same time can also be very terrifying to ask that question. But the reality is we come into this reality, this world, without those things, and we leave it without those things. So I think the big question is, without all of those things, who are we?
0: I think it's an incredibly important question, and some people might feel like they have no idea who they are. I mean, a number of things on this list are about having children. I have this one friend in particular who just seems like everything is about her kids all the time. And for me not being a parent, I really can't understand, right? But I have a lot of friends that have children. And something about this particular friend stands out for me was the timing in which she chose to have her first child and how it just feels like she wants to have more and more children all the time. She has more children than most of my other friends do, right? And again, this is me making a judgment on her. These are my perceptions. But when I use these questions, I start to wonder, like, does having a child depend on her Make her feel more mature? Does that make her feel successful? Does that make her feel more capable, less anxious, and happier? Right? Like when she focuses on her children's struggles, as she often does, like does that make her feel better because she can show up as a great parent that she's constantly helping somebody? Right? Perhaps that explains it, right? I don't know, but it's something to reflect on. And we don't really ever know for sure. I mean, it's hard enough to figure out who we are as individuals. And so we can't even begin to understand somebody else, like, unless they share it with us, but they don't even <laughs> necessarily know who they are, right? Like, that's what makes all of this so complicated. Another thing that's kind of interesting about this is number 19 on this list is obsessing over a celebrity or other interest. And it's fascinating to put that into this context because I'm fascinated by celebrity culture in general. I. Had noticed a lot within myself, my interest in celebrities, especially when I first moved out to Los Angeles. I got so excited whenever I would see a celebrity or interact with one in some cases through my jobs. And I still notice this, right? Because we're in LA, it definitely was pretty common before the pandemic. Now, not so much. But you see celebrities fairly often at restaurants, on the street, at grocery stores, like all over the place that we've seen them. And there's often this moment of like, oh my God, is that so and so? And then you want to like take a picture of them and then send it to your friends or just tell your friends that you saw so and so. And it's like, if you step back, it's kind of strange, right? That we can get so fixated on this. I was at Target like a few months ago and I saw this girl. I overheard her talking to her boyfriend about how she saw a celebrity in the store. And it was a YouTuber because I heard her referencing this person. And she was so excited about it. Like, it literally had just happened. I didn't see this YouTuber, but apparently, this YouTube person was in the store too. And this girl was just like losing her mind. And she was around my age, you know, it wasn't like a little kid. And she was so excited about this. And I've noticed a lot how we've basically classified content creators or influencers as celebrities now. And it is something that we can really obsess over. We can just become so drawn into their lives. You were sharing. Jason that you were really drawn into Johnny Depp's story right and I think your context for that was how you kind of were maybe feeling like some pleasure seeing like how his career had taken a downfall is that right
1: Yeah and it's interesting cuz it wasn't to me necessarily about hate following Johnny Depp we talked about that you know this concept of hate following or doom scrolling or looking for things to be angry or enraged about We also called it disaster baiting. I don't have a vendetta against Johnny Depp. You know what it is? It's more of like a psychological curiosity of here's a person who, quote, has everything, right? He was making for Pirates of the Caribbean at his peak, like 40 million per movie. I mean, just insane amounts of money to be paid for his art and has been in Hollywood since 1984 and has dated all of these incredible women and performs with Aerosmith. And I mean, you look at Johnny Depp from a bird's eye perspective. I don't know who he is. I've never met him in my life. I have no idea what his demons are, his suffering, his psychological tug of war. I have no idea. But to me, it was like, why do we keep seeing this archetype over and over again of a person who on a material sense or a level of worldly success, quote, has everything? And we can look at so many people. I mean, I like Johnny Depp as an actor. I think his work is consistently great. It's sort of like a similar fascination, but different when other celebrities have taken their own lives of how could this person who has amassed millions and millions and millions in wealth, they tour the world, they have moved millions of people with their art, and they take their own lives. Now, I'm not alluding to the fact that Johnny Depp may take his own life, but it's in a similar vein, Whitney, of like, again, the schizophrenic nature of our society of, Chase that. Yeah, that's what you want. You want the fancy cars and the success and the fame and the money and go after that. Keep hustling, keep grinding. But then we see people get to the top of their proverbial pyramid, top of the mountain, and they're in agony. And so to me, it wasn't about like celebrating Johnny Depp's agony or failure as much as it is a curiosity of like, why is this person doing this? What could possibly be manifesting in this human being that they would sabotage themselves to this degree? And maybe it's giving me comfort because maybe I've sabotaged myself. Maybe I've sabotaged certain aspects of my career. And it's like, what is it in us that does that? Where we have so many things handed to us in life, incredible things. I mean, Johnny Depp's one of the most successful actors in history. One could say he's sabotaging his career. I don't want to make that judgment. And again, I don't want to fill this episode ad nauseum about Johnny Depp. I think it's just more Whitney about the curiosity of when people have everything they are self-destructive and sabotage what they have.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a whole nother conversation, but I think this kind of ties back into this idea of wanting to join the latest outrage. And that's where the media makes its money. We can get super outraged. We'll pay more attention to the news. We'll watch it longer. We'll watch the YouTube videos. (laughs) I found myself doing this the other day there's this one YouTuber who I've been fascinated with for five plus years. And I don't spend that much time on YouTube these days, but I do spend a lot of time on TikTok. And this really well-known entertainment, I don't necessarily want to say journalist, it's more of a gossip person, has been posting about this particular YouTuber and all the things that's been going on. And it's like, I found myself for probably an hour like going down the rabbit hole of the latest outrage and then coming back to our conversation earlier about email and newsletters. I received this one newsletter that's really interesting to me because it's about influencer marketing and it's kind of like the news source for it and a lot of the times they're posting about like the latest outrage on social media that I'm generally not that interested in because it feels like a waste of time for me. And now that I have this better understand of pseudo-self as pseudo-maturity and all that, it's like, why am I just spending all this time joining the latest outrage instead of developing and defining my own thinking? And that also reminds me of this time. Gosh, I don't remember when that was. It must have been 2019, Jason, when um, that one vegan influencer was caught eating fish.
1: Oh, Ravana.
0: Yeah. And I got really, really irritated by that whole situation. And this actually happened a few times where I've publicly spoken out. I remember many years ago, I wrote a blog post when people were outraged that Natalie Portman was no longer vegan. And then I'm sure I did this, oh, Asina O'Neill. I posted a video about my thoughts on that too. And it was kind of like me coming out and saying, I think differently about this. In the Ravana case, which is more recent... I don't typically make videos commenting on other people. I'm not there to get views based on like creating outrage and being a rebel or whatever. But the reason that I did make that video on a conscious level is that I was so frustrated that people just wanted to feed this woman to the wolves. And actually, it was the same time. Something else had kind of resurfaced and caught my interest again this week, which is interesting that this comes up. I think it was the same time as Ravana that the college scandal was going on with Lori Loughlin's daughter, Olivia... Gosh, I'm blanking on her last name. I think it's Olivia.
1: Olivia Jade.
0: Yes. Thank you. I think it was that same time and that same video that I referenced that we just love burning people at the stake. It's so tempting to criticize someone like Ravana. She's a beautiful woman. She's very successful it seems like she's got it made. And so the second there's something wrong with her, people want to put all this attention on her. Same thing with Olivia Jade. like She's young. She's beautiful. She's wealthy. She's privileged. She's white, on and on. And the second like we have an opportunity to tear her down and cancel her, we do it. And you and I, Jason, have spoken a lot about cancel culture. And so looking at this list of examples from Kathleen... It's like, what if instead of joining the outrage, we really develop and define our own thinking, even when it may promote anxiety in others, meaning like, I don't need everybody to agree with me. In fact, what if I see something and define how I feel about it versus going and reading what other people think about it, which is what we tend to do. So much of our society is based on going and reading the comment section, as I've talked about. In places like TikTok, it's so much about reading the comment section. And can you post something that is what everybody else is thinking or wants to think? Can you convince people to agree with you based on your commentary? And I actually think it's probably quite dangerous given that that culture is growing As we talked about earlier in another episode, Jason, like I'm typically not someone that reads the comments, but I got into the habit of it with platforms like TikTok because I knew that the comments section was going to be full of opinions. And it was like, hmm, like I don't know fully how I feel about this. Or I do know how I feel about this, but I'm open to being convinced otherwise. I think that's super fascinating and something that I have a tendency to do like I was saying earlier, my tendency to call up a friend or text a friend when I'm going through something challenging to see what their thoughts are on it and what they would do versus like spending more time really getting grounded in like what I want to do, what I believe I should do, what my intuition is telling me, and truly developing and defining my thinking. And I wouldn't be surprised if culturally everyone and especially the younger generations that are a lot more susceptible to these things, what if we're all being trained to not trust ourselves? What if we are being trained to be in this pseudo-mentality, and this pseudo-maturity, right? Like the more I dig into this, the more I think a lot of this behavior is very, very common. Like this list is something that pretty much everybody can relate to.
1: It's the norm now. And when I say the norm It's conditioned versus non-conditioned behavior. And this is tricky, right? Because in the sense of our conditioning, we're talking about decades of patterning, mirroring, mirror neurons firing, observing our parents, observing our religious figures, observing our celebrities, as you said, Whitney, observing our peers, observing our heroes. To me, it's remarkable when you meet a person in life who has... Decondition themselves to a point of almost like fully liberated to make decisions of their own volition. I don't know that we can ever be fully. I mean, I think if we were completely deconditioned, we'd probably be like an avatar. Like, as an example, a Buddha or a Jesus or something in that realm, okay? For us, though, I think the conditioning, which I think conditioning can also be interchangeably used with programming, this is really hard work. I think. If I may, for a lot of people, they don't realize they're conditioned. They don't realize they're programmed. This is just life. This is just how it is. Like, this is who I am. In my particular cosmology, right? And I think for you as well, one of the reasons that we're doing this is the question of is this actually what I want? Is this actually how I feel? Is this actually something I value? What are my values? Who is I? Who the fuck even is I? What is me? These are the kind of distillation questions, right? Of trying to. Look at this, all the layers of conditioning we're talking about. And do we have the wherewithal and the desire to look at the conditioning and then decide whether we want to keep it or not, right? I mean, that's really the thing is, is this conditioning, are these belief systems, is this programming serving me? Does it make me feel content and joyful and alive? Or am I living from a program that's not even me? I mean, this is where we get into like layers of reality and maybe we save this for a totally different episode, but. I think one of the reasons, Whitney, if I may, that people don't really go deep down this road is it can feel really lonely. For me, sometimes when I look at the world, I feel super lonely sometimes. And I feel lonely because I feel like the more that I go on, the things that I see society and many, many, many people value and put credibility toward and put their attention toward I have no interest in. I'm not saying I'm an avatar, I'm not saying I'm some ascended master. I'm not even saying I'm trying to be that. But I think one of the reasons people maybe don't try to decondition themselves or shed these belief systems or programming is I feel like for me the path gets very narrow and it gets very lonely sometimes. I don't know if you feel that way, but I feel that way a lot. Hmm. I
0: think we have different definitions and experience of loneliness and I certainly feel moments of wondering Am I alone in this? Am I the only one feeling this way? Like, Is there something wrong with me? Has everybody got this figured out, etc.? And I think that's why these conversations are so important. And I do agree that I think one of the reasons that a lot of people don't want to admit these things or share these things or even examine them is because it's scary. It's like, who am I if I strip away all of this? And maybe this does need to continue into another episode because there's so much more to explore. And now I feel extra motivated to invite Kathleen on the show because we didn't even make it like halfway through the list, scanning it, like, let alone going through every part of it. I mean, just to fire some off here that are food for thought. And again, we'll link to this article that she wrote. Her newsletter is available as a kind of a blog post. And we'll link to everything else that we've mentioned in the show notes, which again is at wellevator.com spelled W-E-L-L com. I mean things like being the most experienced person in the room being the youngest or the oldest right being the most attractive like those are such common desires these obsessions with being quote the most being the best being the first being the only Those things are incredibly common. I feel like we're often fighting to prove that about ourselves on social media. We want to highlight that. If we look at our bios, not just our titles, as we've talked about, Jason, but like maybe another subject matter we can dive into is like what we write in our bios and our profiles, like the things that we say. We want to highlight the awards that we've received and the education that we had. I mean, another thing I want to talk about in the future is. Is how triggered I got, as you know, Jason, when this one person recently who we invited on the podcast turned us down because he said that he was being very selective about what shows to be on. Fair enough, but the phrasing of it just like it hurt and it irritated me. It was like, you know, you probably could have phrased it a little bit differently. You didn't have to point out that our podcast didn't qualify, didn't meet your. Qualifications. And not only that, but this person went on to ask me about my qualifications as a coach. And I got very triggered because I was like, oh my gosh. Like, first I thought, ooh, like, is our podcast not good enough? Are my qualifications, am I not good enough because I'm not certified in the same way? Like, you know, is my education not good enough? My degree, like, all of that not good enough came up for me. And then I felt like a little, how dare you? Like, it just felt so confronting and rude to me to ask and state these things to somebody else that kindly invited you to do something with them. And this is all based on my deeper issues, right? So, this is my way of interpreting, which may not have been how this person meant it. But it does tie into this, like, being the most, being the best, et cetera. It's like sometimes being super selective, I think, is also an indicator of the pseudo maturity. And I do this myself too. Jason, you and I love to use that phrase, dinka dinka, like, oh, like we're not gonna do dinka dinka bullshit anymore, (laughs) right? Like you and I have gotten to this place of like, almost either we're too good for this or we're past that phase of our life, et cetera. And that's something worth examining too, because who's to say that we are too good for something or something isn't good enough for us, right? Like maybe these things are part of that pseudo maturity within ourselves.
1: I mean, it makes sense. The things that we judge about others are often the things that we are holding judgment toward ourselves. So in this assessment of whether we choose to collaborate or partner with people, and then you reference this email you got, I mean,
0: it wasn't that I got it was that we got Jason like it was towards yeah. <laughs> it was written to both of us. Yeah.
1: And I didn't personally get triggered by it. But I also understand that I've had situations.
0: But your response was what the fuck when I sent that to you. So you didn't get triggered. Is, why would you respond that way if you weren't triggered by it?
1: I mean, I wasn't like triggered in the sense of like my not enoughness didn't get triggered by it. It was almost like the what the fuck was almost like surprise in the sense of a person who is openly trying to ask for whether or not you have the proper credentials to interview them. It was almost like that, not so much the not enoughness, but what I perceive as hubris from a person. It was just like, well, are you qualified enough to have me on? It's like, fuck you. <laughs> we don't want you on. You know what I mean? It's and it's not cuz I feel hurt or my not enoughness was triggered. It was almost just like when I perceive and judge that kind of ego. And it might not be from him, but my perception of it was like, who's this guy? You know what I mean? Like, who are you? But then again, maybe that's me trying to deflect the potential of pain by diminishing him through his egoic evaluation of who we are. Does that make sense? It's almost like a deflection.
0: For sure. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, like, who the
1: fuck are you, dude, to judge us or ask what our certifications are is a reversal of me judging him so I don't feel judged.
0: (laughs) Well, it's like we did an episode about, gosh, they all blur together sometimes because we've done a few relationship episodes. And I remember in one of them, we were talking about a girl being like knowing that she's pretty, right? Remember that one? Yeah. And I how do. men could be like, "Oh my gosh, like you're beautiful." And it goes, "Thank you." Like men can get offended by that or something. Like, "Oh, how dare you realize and acknowledge that you're pretty even though I just did." You know, it's like that also comes back around to when men feel rejected, which is like, "No, I'm not interested in dating you." And then a man's like, "Well, fuck you. Like you're not that great anyway." It's like, "Oh, I'm hurt by you rejecting me, and so I'm going to say something that makes you feel hurt." I didn't respond to this email that we're re- referencing because I didn't want to reject back this person. But in my head and in some private conversations with you, Jason, I was getting on that high horse of like, well, screw him. Like, we don't want him on our show anyways, even though <laughs> we're the ones that invited him on our show, you know? So it's like kind of funny. Like, when somebody takes something away from you because you didn't want it or something. It's like that classic line of, like, you can't fire me because I quit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and um, I think to wrap up this before we do a whole nother episode diving deeper in, and hopefully Kathleen won't reject us. Hopefully she'll take our invitation. But if she does choose not to be on our show for whatever reason, we'll work on not taking it as an offense. But she said that these things that she has in this long list of 50 items. Can make us temporarily stronger, calmer, and more capable, but they don't necessarily make us more mature. None of them are good or bad. It's only human to feel great through these situations. It's just that over reliance on these boosters can make life feel like a roller coaster ride of intoxicating highs and excruciating lows. And I think that is such a wonderful thing when we can step back and just look at our decisions. Are they being guided by our values, our beliefs, our principles? Or are they being guided by relationship pressure and all these pseudo self-boosters? This requires us to know, as Kathleen says, what we believe in, what we want, and who we're trying to be. And then putting that thinking into action especially in emotionally intense situations where others might disapprove. These are the moments where the self can shrink back or it can step forward and learn to dance with the anxiety of progress. This is when we are challenged to use our internal navigation system to find a way forward instead of relying on a nod or a frown from the audience. So well said, right? And again, she has a great book that I've, Have not finished. I'm pretty sure I started reading it, but I definitely did not finish it. It's amongst many books that I should or would like to give more attention to. But her book is called Everything Isn't Terrible How to Conquer Your Insecurities, Interrupt Your Anxiety, and Finally Calm Down. She is a doctor. She has credentials and she's got this wonderful newsletter. So, regardless of if you get the book, I do recommend the newsletter. I love reading it. She's so articulate. She gives me a lot of food for thought. And this has just been a really fascinating conversation, Jason.
1: Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot more to cover with this. And certainly that some of these topics I feel are going to bleed into a future episode with Kathleen or without. And for you, dear listener, we appreciate you always joining us and exploring these questions. These are some of the biggest life questions when we talk about deconditioning ourselves, making decisions of our own volition finding out who we actually are without our titles, our identity, our jobs, our families, all of these things that we walk through the physical world thinking that we are. I mean, this really, Whitney, is some of the, I think, most existential, deepest spiritual work we can handle and tackle in this world. So certainly not the end of this conversation. It's never the end of this conversation. That's why we have more episodes of This Might Get Uncomfortable. And for you, dear listener, for all of the show notes, you can visit our website. It's dot com. That's wellevator.com. We have all of the books and articles and things we mentioned in this episode right there. Just click on the podcast section. We'll take you to all of the show notes for all of our episodes. And you can always email us directly with your thoughts, your pontifications, your smart-ass remarks, whatever you want to send us. We welcome all of it. It's hello at WellEvator.com. And we are on all of the social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, YouTube, TikTok. You can follow our exploits, especially on Instagram. We're doing some really cool stuff there. And we will be back again soon in a few days with another episode. So thanks for joining us as always. We appreciate you.